Welcome to the Women Encouraged Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Berendrecht. We are all about growing in Christ and being shaped by His Word, so I'm delighted to share these conversations with Christians who love the Lord, love His Word, and are pursuing a life of faithfulness in Him. I'm praying this episode is a blessing to you and that you'll be encouraged to apply the gospel to this topic and walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Welcome to the conversation. Hi friend, welcome back to Women Encouraged. I'm so thankful to be sharing this conversation with Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria is a pastor's wife and mom, as well as an author of several books like The Gospel Comes with the House Key and The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She shares her testimony today with us, and so I'll leave that for her to tell you. But I'm so excited to be able to share this with you because there are so many obstacles that we're facing as a church when it comes to reaching members of the LGBTQ community. And Rosaria speaks so directly to those issues and helps us learn how to use our language and address and talk about these fellow image bearers in a way that honors the Lord and is faithful to scripture. In our conversation today, Rosaria talks about the struggle of inviting unbelieving friends and neighbors over and some of the ways that we can cultivate being approachable and open with unbelieving friends and neighbors, as well as engaging in hospitality towards individuals who really live very different lifestyles or who are opposed to scripture. We are praying that you will be encouraged to minister grace to the people that God has put you in the midst of and engage with them on a deep level. Let's get started with my conversation with Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield, thank you for joining me today at the Women Encouraged podcast. I'm so glad to have you here finally. It's such an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Well, I would love for you to introduce yourself for the people that might not know who you are. I just, I feel like every time I talk to somebody and I say, oh, have you read this book by Rosaria Butterfield or have you heard of her? I just have such a mix of responses. So some people are very familiar with you and others just aren't. Can you introduce yourself and share your story and testimony? Absolutely. And I'm really grateful that, you know, to hear that some people aren't because I'm actually an introvert and it sort of makes, kind of freaks me out a little bit, the thought that people I don't know might know me, but um, I am a pastor's wife and um, I am a sometimes writer and a sometimes speaker and I'm a mother by adoption, um, and I'm a grandmother. And I live in Durham, North Carolina, where I try to support my husband in the pastorate and uh, where I homeschool the two youngest of my children. And I'm amazed by God's grace every day. Every time I look in the mirror, I think, Rosaria, you don't belong here. Why are you here? And I'm here only because of the grace of God. So, um, So I'm grateful for that, and I'm humbled by that. And I look at the world around me and, and I'm, I'm queasy. Um, this mm. is the world I helped create. I, uh, 21 years ago, was a gay rights activist in New York. I very much thought I was doing the right thing out of the authenticity of my heart and out of the, um, a forward-thinking agenda of care. And, um, 
And it's a long story. Uh, you know, it's, that's why I write books because books are better at long stories than podcasts. But, um, after I had uh, co-authored the uh, domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, which was the forerunner for gay marriage, a neighbor of mine who is also a, a Christian pastor befriended me. And after probably 500 meals with Ken and his wife, Floyd Smith, uh, the Lord started to work in my heart and I came to Christ. I came to Christ not because I stopped feeling like a lesbian, but because I believe that Christ is who he says he is. And that began a long, very hard journey. Um, life in Christ is is not for the weak of, of fortitude of heart or mind. It is for the rigorous, no question. Faith takes grit um, and humility, and those are hard things. But um, But I'm grateful for the Lord's work in my life. I'm very grateful for it. Shortly after conversion, um, I, I realized that I didn't know myself as well as I thought I did. I thought I really knew myself. Um, but looking at myself in the mirror of scripture showed me that I really didn't, that I needed to understand who I was in Christ. In other words, how does, you know, um, you know, an ex-lesbian, you know, radical feminist activist, what does godly womanhood look like in the context of me? Um, and I came to learn that godly womanhood wasn't circumstantial. It was um, it was ontological. It was it was deep and abiding. And um, after the rigors of of praying that the Lord would make me a, a godly woman, He put upon my heart the desire to be a godly wife. And and then He um, and then He fulfilled that desire with um, with you know meeting my husband Kent Butterfield and. You know, sometimes when I tell this story, it feels like I'm talking about a different person. It was, you know, decades ago. And in some ways it was a different person, right? I'm a new creature in Christ, but, but in other ways, not at all. You know, I haven't forgotten the contours of that and the rigors of that. And I look at the world we live in right now and, and, you know, the gay rights movement speaks with a voice of, of self-assurance and authority, not unlike the voice I spoke with 21 years ago. But I had a Christian neighbor who basically decided that God probably knew me better than I knew myself. And he was going to go with that. And I'm really grateful that he did. So that's the short story. That is, it's such an encouragement to me. And, and I found like my husband actually is the one who introduced me to you. I I don't know how many years ago, but I found just that I've been challenged more often than not by your story because it really confronts the the ideas that I've had in mm-hmm. growing up. You know, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I don't know what 37 is supposed to feel like, but I still feel like I'm like early 20s. You know, I don't feel like I mean, I know God has changed me. I know that God has matured me right. in that time, but right. but I don't I can relate to what you say like you don't feel like a different person, but and I at the same time I think I've been challenged by your story and by you know, the pastor who ministered to you and and who treated you like an image bearer. Um he didn't treat you like you were something for him to be embarrassed about. Right. And and I and I love that. I want to know before I get into my my big questions for you. Do you feel like the the ministry of Ken and Floyd is a model 
that we can um, really adopt as believers? Is this something that you would like to see uh, the believers adopt their way of ministering to you? And is this something that's adaptable, not just adoptable? Yes, yes, yes. In fact, that's part of why I wrote The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I wrote that because um, you know, I, I look pretty cleaned up right now. I, I don't know what that means, but, but, um, you know, often when people will hear my testimony, they'll be shocked and say, well, how did somebody like you get to get to this place? And when I share specifically the hospitality of Ken and Floyd Smith, the 500 meals, at least the hours of conversation, the lingering long over hard questions and basic domestic duties like driving each other to the airport or, you know, sharing irises that needed to be thinned out. Um, right. The basics, but lingering long over those. When I share that with people, often, often they will walk away, you know, somewhat rich young ruler style and say, wow, well, you know, Ken and Floyd really had a gift of hospitality, but, you know, I have travel soccer to think about. And I, I just, you know, I, I fear for this Christian world. I really do. Because um, I believe persecution is coming. I, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just working on my own kind of, you know, hunches. But, but when, you hear, um, when you hear the testimonies of someone like Andrew Brunson, the um, American pastor who was detained in a Turkish prison for 745 days, and yeah. then released a year ago, you know, he, he, he has, he, he see, he saw things we need to hear. Um, we need to listen to people like, like, like pastor Brunson. And when I think about what that means, you know, what it means to live in a more and more post-Christian world. Well, it means that there are more and more people like the person I used to be around than the people who were raised in the youth group at the Baptist church. That's just what it means. It means that those are the people that we see more of, that we hear more of, that speak more loudly, that have the ear of the Washington Post and the New York Times and USA Today. How are we going to speak to those people? I yeah. was one of those people. Ken and Floyd did it using the basic means of grace. But the basic means of grace, Bible reading, prayer, ministry, loving your neighbors, it means that you've got to clear out the idols. And one Mm. of the biggest idols we have is we don't have time for people because we're really busy building our own kingdoms. And in a post-Christian world, those kingdoms are going to be like sandcastles. So if you want to see your neighbors come to Christ, if you want to see those scary neighbors come to Christ, people like the person I used to be, you need to be willing to stand close enough to get hurt. You need to be willing to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of the savior. And you need to be willing to allow your relationships to be as strong as your words. And you need to be willing to reflect on your social media life. And take a hard look at it and decide if it's helping you or hurting you. Those are hard things. Nobody wants to change. But yes, what Ken and Floyd did, that's really the basics of the Christian life. There's nothing in it 
that was um, that was you know fancy or risky or even radical, right? But it requires a different kind of palette to work from than what most of us are, are working with right now, and so we need to be willing to take stock of where we are and think about it. That's really powerful. I found myself just sitting here like absorbing everything you're saying. I really am praying that that the Lord continues to use your words as he has been, because I think that, like you said, this isn't anything fancy, but it's powerful and it, and God uses it, um, he uses our faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I want to I talk about how we talk, and that's um, it's a very difficult thing, I think, of, for a lot of people, a lot of Christians. You know, we've had this kind of alphabet soup sort of thing introduced to us in the last several years yeah. where we, we have no idea how long this alphabet or numbers or whatever is going to continue. So yeah. when it comes to language and speaking about and to members of the LGBTQ community, how can we refer to them you know, they're image bearers of God. How do we refer to them in a way that honors the Lord and is faithful to scripture? And, and if you have anything in this regard, what should we avoid? Right, right, right. Well, you should avoid the gay rights um, movements um, dictionary. And because the dictionary comes with an ideology, it comes with the idea that that gay is who this person is, not necessarily how that person feels. Um, with that, you should avoid the language of the gay Christian movement, whether it's side A or side B, because it ber- both works out of an ideology that says that sexual orientation is a true barometer of personhood, when in fact, sexual orientation is a 19th century paradigm. That means that sexual orientation came into this world as an idea for organizing people about 150 years ago. The gay rights movement and the gay Christian movement talk about sexual orientation as though it's as old as the pyramids. Um, It's just not. God doesn't use that language. The Bible doesn't use that language. Biblically speaking, homosexuality is an indwelling sin. Um, it, it, it starts for many of us with just the particular way that original sin, original sin uh, has shaped us. You know, everybody is born in original sin. We are all born in Adam. We are all born with a desire for something that God hates. Um, I'm a homeschool mom. At the end of the day, I'll often have a series of text messages from other homeschool moms who have prayed and asked for my prayer about 50 times that they wouldn't yell at their children. And at the end of the day, they know that that's an indwelling sin, not a category of personhood. And the same is true for homosexuality. Uh, If you desire, um, if you desire something that God hates, it's sin. Now, you know, we live in a world that has said, well, love, love wins. And they've used love as a, um, as an intransitive verb. Forgive me. I'm an English professor. I'm oh, going to have do. to go into language here. Um, okay. So they, they, you know, they want you to see love as an intransitive verb. They want you to see love as something that is noble and good 
and reflects the integrity of the lover. But that's not what God says about love. Love is a transitive verb, scripturally speaking, and love carries the integrity of the object that you love, not the heart or the good intentions that you love with. And so in that way, we all people, you know, all Christians have to deal with the original sin that distorts us, the actual sin that distracts us, and the indwelling sin that manipulates us every minute of the day. That is true whether your indwelling sin pattern is homosexuality or whether it's anger. And so, so therefore, I never refer to people anymore. I mean, I'll tell you, I used to. And then after the Obergefell decision, I realized I, I had to stop saying this. I don't talk about my lesbian neighbors. I talk about my neighbors who identify as lesbian. I recognize that's how they describe themselves. And I, and I, and I respect that. I see that, I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't live in la la land. I understand reality when I'm faced with it, but I also understand that it's not really true. Um, it's real, but it's not true. It's material. You know, I see them. I love them. I have dinner with them. We sometimes have Thanksgiving together. We walk, you know, walk each other's dogs and we pick up each other's kids at places that we you know when needed, but, but it's not true. And so far as that's not God's best for them, not at all. I have no doubt in my mind that my neighbors who identify as lesbian would love each other better if they were sisters in Christ hmm. and not against each other. I'm confident of that. So so I don't say I don't say my lesbian neighbors. I say my neighbors who identify as lesbian. Um, and you know what? If that's clunky, so be it. You know, life isn't always, uh, you know, uh, perfectly articulated in iambic pentameter. But I think that you have to be careful about language because um, the language you use reflects the worldview you embrace. Yeah. And and George Orwell was right. If you change the language, you change the logic. And that's where this alphabet soup has gotten us. You know, it used to be three letters. And now I think it's maybe 15 or 16 with that little plus at the end indicating that, you know, it, it's going to change. Don't, don't get a PhD in this because it, it's not a stable, it's not a stable thing. And it's not a true thing. You know, when you think about like what's going on right now in Texas with the seven-year-old boy whose uh, parental rights has, has been terminated because his, um, his believing father believes that he's a boy and his unbelieving mother doesn't and, and her desire to move quickly into uh, sex change operation, you know, all of this. When you, when you hear these things and you see these things, you realize that it, it, you know, we are standing in quicksand and, you know, sometimes we read, especially the old Testament and we look at something like Moloch and we say, well, who in the world would sacrifice right. their kids to Moloch? Who indeed? Well, we would, that's who we, we are the people yeah. look in the mirror, any culture that thinks that a sex change operation for a seven-year-old is a good idea is a, is a culture that sacrifices its children to Moloch. This is where we all, you know, sackcloth and ashes, get on our knees and repent. Yeah. We did it. We own it. We're those people. It's, it is heartbreaking. And those questions, who would do this? Um, where, how did we get here? I think those are, those are like when I had mentioned before we started recording, I have all the questions. 
um, I, I, I know some of the answers to those questions, like how did we get here? But um, I had an interesting conversation with a friend recently who runs another podcast, and we were talking about the use of different translations or paraphrases yeah. and how those are being um, used as tools ultimately to promote a message that says yep. that this is no big yep. deal. That it's just the issue is when there's lust and not love, that's the problem. And and if we really just loved each other, it would be fine. Right. And and that's a that's a painful thing to walk watch your friends going down that road thinking, well, I've I've been reading, you know, the message or the passion translation. And so therefore it all these other things are fine. And there's so many obstacles in our way, I feel like. And and you're right, we live in this post Christian world. And I at the same time I do feel hopeful that that God is not going to abandon his church. I mean, I read Revelation and and I see, you know, God is God is faithful. He's not going to leave us to ourselves. You know, he is he's mindful of what we're doing. But I, I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We just right. kind of slap the table and just wish Jesus would come back sooner. We live right now. We have we're put in 2020, 2019, 2020 for a reason. That's right. So what what are our obstacles that when it comes to reaching the, the members of the LGBTQ community or people who identify this way, mm-hmm. what are the obstacles for the church when it comes to that? Are there pitfalls we need to be yeah. really aware of? Absolutely. The first is we have a confused message. And I think the first thing we need to do is deal with ourselves. I think we need to deal with our with the church. We need to deal with professing believers who are advancing a false gospel. We need to be willing to do we need to be willing to love people well enough to apply what 1 John 4 says, test the spirits and call out false teachers. And don't pretend that we're agreeing to disagree. That is that is a hateful way to go about business. So the first thing we need to do is call out false teachers. Jesus loved Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. We are called in James to bridle the tongue, not to silence. And a bridled tongue allows for a clear statement that calls out heresy. And what we are seeing right now in the church, what I am seeing, and those of us who are on the front line of this conversation, and you know what? We have the tire treads on our face to prove it. What I'm seeing is that I'm seeing a sharpening in a good way because throughout throughout all of church history, um, orthodoxy is codified because of heresy. We have a burgeoning heretical gospel that is using pathetically horrible translations. No one wants to be like the Bereans. We all want to be singing Kumbaya. And, you know, not only are some of us walking the road to hell, we're taking others with us. That needs to be called out. The church has to be willing to apply what it says at the end of Mark to have salt within ourselves and grace with others. And so that's the first thing. And that's the last thing. And that's the everyday thing that has to happen. We shouldn't be surprised when heretics become apostates. That shouldn't be shocking to us. And we shouldn't be so callous, cruel, and foolish to make celebrities out of Christians. Christians are never 
celebrities. If you are a public Christian, then you need to be known for three things. Dying to yourself, daily repentance, washing a lot of feet, but none of that, none of that is about being a celebrity. If I hear one more time, we can't have a, and then fill in the blank, name the name of your church without, and then name the name of that celebrity. Uh, you know, I'm just going to vomit. The only thing you can't live without is Jesus. The only thing your church can't live without or your parachurch or your podcast can't live without is the blood of Christ. If you think any of this hangs on a human being, just hang it up now. So yeah. the first thing we need to be willing to do is we need to be willing to call out false teachers because what happens in a post-Christian world is the church gets uh, cleaned up. You know, God purifies his church and that's a good thing, but that's a hard thing. Um, so that's the first thing we need to be willing to do. And then with our unbelieving neighbors, we need to be genuine friends with them. We need to find out what they need. We need to find out if they need childcare, if they need groceries, if they need somebody to walk their dogs. We need to care about what they care about to the degree that we can. We need to have open doors and not by invitation only because your unbelieving neighbors are deeply afflicted by by both abuse and addiction. And quite frankly, if you, it sounds very nice. You're going to invite them over to your house when, you know, when your house is cleaned up and you have food. Well, that sounds nice on your end, but they might not know if they're going to be either sober or safe that day. So what we is, we have found works better is just to have a weekly open house and to tell our neighbors, all of them, that we're going to start cooking at six o'clock on Friday night. Come over, bring your friends, bring a chair, bring your kids. Um, and we've gotten to know so many of our neighbors that way. It's a long story, and that's why I wrote a book about it. But, but we need to be willing to not, you know, agree to disagree. Right. To be willing to disagree and have dinner together. Yeah. To disagree and love each other well enough to be be trustworthy with each other's children and houses and house keys and pets. That's what real love is. You know, a friend of mine not so long ago called me up and said, Rosaria, and this is an old friend from years and years ago when I lived in a different state and all of my kids were little. And you remember those days when the kids are little, if you, you know, if you shower four times a week, you're having an overachieving week. And, you know, yes. we were together in that crisis of little kids and potty training. And, and she called me up and she said, Rosaria, we can't be friends anymore because I've come out as a lesbian and you don't approve of me. And I had to stop and think. And I just said, Ruth, I've got to tell you this because there's just something really wrong with what you're saying. I never approved of you. Never. And you never approved of me. I mean, we disagreed about spanking, Pixar films, and the kind of oil the chicken nuggets were, were, were dripped in. We never approved of each other, but we always loved each other. So why are you changing the rules on me? And she laughed really hard. She said, you know, I never approved of you ever, ever, ever. You know, I thought this was barbaric and that was wrong and this was wrong. But you're right. We always loved each other. And I said, well, then why are you changing the rules? She said, you know, I don't know. I guess that is kind of silly. I guess we mm -hmm. agree. You know, because if you think about it, if you think about it, no parent ever, ever loved any child then if, if love and approval have to go together for real. That's ridiculous. So I think we have to be willing to just love people well enough to stop them and say, no, I really, I really love you. And I really don't approve of you. And actually, 
that's an accurate statement for the entire history we've had. But one of the things that means is it means we don't throw people out when they disappoint us or when they scare us. We don't, we don't, we treat people like image bearers. We don't treat them like garbage. We don't have ultimatums. We don't say, well, if you, if you're going to bring a girlfriend home for Thanksgiving, then don't bother coming home. We, we don't say that. We don't say that, you know, Jesus dined with sinners. He didn't sin with sinners, but he dined with sinners. And that takes a certain fortitude. You know, it, it means that you start loving people well enough to not caring about your reputation. That's a hard thing. It is. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about different people that I know, some of whom have modeled this well and some of whom have made me nervous, I guess. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but um, thinking about how, you know, that that difference between approving and being approachable, I think there there are some really big differences there. Um, The other thing that I was thinking about was just how um, we often are so unsure about how to have conversations with people that we avoid the conversations altogether. Right, right. And that is a reflection of not being deeply enough in the word to be fluent yeah. with it. And it's a reflection of those 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 ridiculous women's Bible studies that always have a fill in the blank. Newsflash, there's no fill in the blank for this one. You know, nope. <laughs> we need to stop. You know, we're like we're like the 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 children who never leave a phonetic approach to language. You know, we need to move to fluency. And fluency means, you know, you take those Bible studies with all those fill in the blanks and you throw them against the wall, okay? You'll get a good upper body workout. I recommend it strongly. And get to the business of learning how to be fluent with Bible. And, you know, you do that in two ways. You read big chunks of it at a time. And I mean, I mean, you know, six chapters a day at least. Yeah. And you have some good Bible software or a good Bible commentary and you work it out. You work it out and you work it through. You understand its context. You understand its purpose. And meanwhile, you are praying for all of your neighbors that you would find the gospel bridge to their life. And I'm going to guarantee that this gospel bridge is going to require one thing that we're not quite prepared for. And that is a long-term relationship with people who think differently than we do. And, you know, again, there's just, there's no parachurch ministry for that. There's, you know, there's no Awana's club for that. There's, you know, there's no little program at your church for that because that's, new that's different but but god does have a gospel bridge for every one of your unbelieving neighbors are you willing to walk halfway on it right if not who who will right and when we pray you know if we're actually praying that prayer like lord show me how to reach my neighbors that is not a prayer that's going to go unanswered he delights to answer those prayers you know he's not gonna let you go your whole life without an answer to that prayer no no and you know, one of the great, great ways is just to start that you would pray that you'd be earthly good to your neighbors, find out what they need, find out what they like, find out, you know, what ways you can serve them. Right. So talking about having people into your home mm-hmm. and that whole concept, there's a lot of Christians I know, I may or may not be one of them, 
who really struggle with this idea of inviting unbelieving friends and neighbors over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I don't have that I know of. I do not have um, neighbors that identify as gay or lesbian or otherwise. Um, but I have some neighbors I know of in my neighborhood who live lives that are openly contrary to scripture. They are sometimes just absolutely terrible, awful ways of being contrary to scripture. And and so if I look around my at my family, I've got young kids, um, I've got kids who are very impressionable, and 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 I've got other Christian friends who are very protective of their kids as well. They're fearful of how to engage, how to act around unbelievers in their own home. Like I can go out and be in my neighborhood. I feel fine with going and talking across the street to my neighbor, talking out in my front yard, having those conversations. But how can we best view and understand hospitality right. and the purpose of our homes through a gospel lens. What do we what do we do with all this? I think I think that part of the honest I think if we were honest with ourselves, the reason that it's hard to have con- have unbelievers in our home is that we have to be bold enough to redirect the conversation. And some of us are too focused on people pleasing to do that. See, the reality is in our home, when we have dinner, after dinner, we have family devotions and we do that every night. We do that, you know, Bethany, if you're at the house or if my unbelieving neighbors are at the house, it's just what we do. Why? Yeah. Because we're a Christian family. Now, are there things, the question to ask yourself is this, first of all, are you having family devotions and are you having it every night, no matter what? Whether the kids are sick, whether you're tired, whether you're sick, whether the house is a mess, whether the house is clean, you know, and if you're not, you know, I would say that's the best place to start to prepare your home to be a place where your neighbors can see Christ. The best way to start is to put yourselves in six week boot camp, nightly family devotions. And, and if, because if you're not doing it, you need to, because right. how else, I mean, do you think your Christian neighbors are not going to catch the gospel by osmosis? It's right. not because you're the Christian who made sweet iced tea that they're going to catch the gospel. It doesn't work that way. You know, what, what happens is at some point, the word of God must be proclaimed, right? In the, in the 1700s, Luther uh, you know, was the first to articulate the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And the first thing is the gospel is proclaimed. And then we pray that God would change people's heart and the Holy Spirit would make the heart a soft place for that proclaimed gospel. Well, people aren't going to church. They're not, they're going to hear it at your house, at your table. But if you're not, again, fluent in that, it can be really awkward. And people have asked, well, what does it look like? It's really simple. At a certain point, the kids will, you know, bring the dinner dishes up to the sink and they'll pass the Bibles and the Psalters down. And my unbelieving neighbors will look at this book and they'll turn it over and they'll say, Kent, what is this? And Kent will say, well, we're glad you're here. This is our family. This is our time of family devotions. And we'd love for you to stay if you'd like. This is the time when we read a chapter of the Bible and we discuss it and then we pray. Yeah. And our unbelieving neighbors usually stay, but they usually have two very good questions. Number one, how long will it take? Very good question. Mm. Everybody wants to know that question when dad starts family devotions. Come on, let's confess it. We all do. And the second is, would I have to pray out loud? 
what interesting, what good questions. Right. And Kim very respectfully says, well, no, no, it's going to take about 20 minutes and this is what we do. And then we, and then we can go to have dessert and coffee and whatever. And, um, and you don't have to pray out loud. Not at all. You know, just, you know, let's open our Bibles too. And so then we open our Bibles. Kent will read usually a chapter. We'll discuss it. Kent will take prayer requests. Those of us who want to pray out loud do. And then that's that. And then you know what? We come back the next night and we do it again. Yeah. And what's happened over years and years and years of doing that in our neighborhood is our neighbors know that they can come to us for prayer and that they can come to us right where they are for prayer. Yeah. Sometimes they just ask us, where are you in family devotions? Uh, you know, and also the kids join in. I mean, let's be clear. We have kids in our neighborhood who have no place to go at dinner time. We have kids in the neighborhood whose parents work and they're they're kind of on their own after school and they're on their own until about 7:30. And so so we've developed friendships with their parents and they come over after school and they get a snack and they stay for dinner and 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 they, you know, they participate. Mm. And as far as what my children have seen, I mean my children are are the youngest ones are older now. But I do have a grandchild, so he's there and he's younger. But but what I'll tell you is that what they have seen over the years is they've seen their parents beg their neighbors whom they love to put their trust their trust and hope in Christ. Yeah. My, my youngest children are, are old enough now, but when they were little, we'd put them to bed and yet we'd find that they would have snuck out of bed and brought their pillows and blankets, and they'd be under the table, under the dining room table, hearing us beg our neighbors to put their faith in Christ. Now, that's not a bad way to grow up. No. You know, it really, it, it's not a bad way to grow up. It, it, it Sheltering your children is not protecting them. Right. So, so I, you know, now I will say, too, that our children come from adoption and foster care. None of us started out with this notion that we were destined for greatness. Hmm. You know, we all started out with a notion that, wow, look what God spared us from. So that's a different backdrop too. But, you know, now, now in terms of open hospitality, we do have lots of boundaries around that. Um, and I talk about it a little bit in the most recent book. But because we were we were um, adoption and foster parents for, for over a decade, we still use the same rules. Um, no kids play in their bedrooms. Really, playing in bedrooms, bad idea. Just bad idea. Um, we do have a, we have a ranch house, and so the the back part of the house is bedrooms. We just close it off if we're having a big kind of group over that we don't really know people very well. We just nobody needs to be in the bedrooms. Period. Least of all the kids. Um, the kids are also trained to to tell us that you know they are not they are not supposed to ever be alone with any adult unless we have given them clear permission. And we've we go over that over and over and over again. So uh, and again, I know Satan is a lot wilier than that. I know that those barriers Satan can get through, but those are those are the boundaries that we start with, and then we modify as we need. Right. But your children will do worse it'll be worse for your children if they learn about homosexuality from their um their public school ethics class yeah it'll be a lot worse for them than seeing you openly embrace love your neighbors and beg them to put their faith in christ 
Amen. Oh, that's so good. I'm so thankful for this. And you're also making me, as at the same time I'm listening to this, you're also making me even more thankful for my own husband because he has, from the minute we were married, really, like we didn't have an evening where he didn't read the Bible and we prayed together. And so our kids have grown up in that culture. That's right. And so also, I guess when we have company over, I would say nine and a half times out of 10, we don't change that. So I'm like, I'm really encouraged to continue just encouraging him in that, that um, we don't change our, our pattern. We don't change what we do after dinner. And I've found like you were talking about kids in the neighborhood who, whose parents work. We actually have a young boy in our neighborhood who showed up at our door wanting to play with our boys when we were uh-huh. right in the middle of dinner and my husband said, why don't you come in and just sit at the table with us? We're just finishing up. And he sat down and my husband had read a passage from one of the gospels about Jesus walking on water. And this, this boy who has no experience with the gospel, with anything at all, just sat straight up. He said, are you serious? He could do that. And so we had the best conversation. Exactly. And can you imagine the missed opportunity if either of you thought to yourselves, oh, hey, wow, this wasn't on the schedule. Right. Just pull up a chair. Or you know what? If you run out of chairs, sit on the floor. Right. It, it's not about it's it's not about entertainment. Yeah. It's it's about Jesus. Wanting people to see Jesus. Yeah. And I think like my kids, I I've noticed like our kids will just model whatever emotion or or mentality even that we're having about a situation so just to think about like if you are embarrassed about the gospel if you are thinking like oh this could be a- imposing on somebody then your kids right. are going to pick up on that they're going to they're going to adopt that same perspective and so the more you just are this is who we are this is what we do they're going right. to be as comfortable with that as you are that's right. But the first order of business is to know the real gospel. Yes. Because in 1 John 4, when it when, when the command goes out to test the spirits, um, we have to do the same thing. So when people come to you and say, well, I believe in Jesus too, you need to say, which Jesus? Which Jesus do you believe in? Yeah. Because we live in a world of many, many Jesuses. So don't just take it at face value. You don't just say, well, you know, he's all the same. No, he's not. Jesus, my imaginary friend, who um, confirms everything I love, is the Jesus who says that the blood of Christ makes an ally to the sin it crushes on the cross. Because I think that's the issue that your children are going to face, more so than having you know, I mean, you might you might have Wiccan witches across the street, but more than likely, you're going to have um, you know pagans who think they're Christians because they they because they think Jesus is a is a fine man. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he fed the poor, and you know, and I think so. It's important to just remember that. Make sure it's the true gospel. It's that's so encouraging and helpful. And I mean, I was I had a conversation with Dr. Lynn Wilder a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she does a lot of ministry to Mormons because they came out of Mormonism. And that was one one thing that we talked about too. And and one thing my husband and I have had occasion to do, we've had a lot of Mormon kids into our home. And it's one of the best things to do is just to ta- tell our kids ahead of time, look, these kids are coming over. And yeah. this is what they think about God. This is what they think about Jesus. And here's why 
they're not correct. Here's what God yeah. says about himself. And I think we we often react in fear to this idea of having people over because we think, well, then our kids are going to be completely blindsided. Well, no, they aren't. You're going to have conversations. You're going to talk just like you would talk any other day with your kids. So yeah, I think it's not something that I need to be as fearful of as I have been in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fair to say which Jesus. I don't think I, I have a dear Mormon cousin. I love her to, dear, to death. And I don't think she, I mean, she's not offended when I say which Jesus. Yeah. You know, people who think about their theology aren't afraid to tell you when we disagree on things. Right. But again, don't don't discount the, the the importance of the home. God works powerfully in private. Don't think that you will be more effective if you write a blog piece that you know a hundred thousand people read. Yeah, the Holy Spirit works heart to heart, hand by hand peanut butter and jelly sandwich to peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, and that's really where the real gospel is. And so don't get sucker punched either by man pleasing or by a sense of inadequacy. Hmm. Our homes are the, that's where the action is. I think. That's so, so helpful. Thank you very much. Um, Do you have any encouragement for, for those of us who want to encourage each other within our local churches to engage on a deeper level with our unbelieving neighbors, is it just as simple as modeling it? Well, I I think I think it's it's not simple because I think it, there's a lot of behind the scenes things. It's sort of you know you're asking about what is how did that Olympic athlete you know how how did that Olympic athlete manage to you know break the tape first? Well, right. there was a lot of behind the scenes activity, you know? And so my question is, are you deeply in the means of grace? Are you a member of a Bible believing church? Are you under the authority of the pastor and the elders? Or quite frankly, do you just join a new church every year when the pastor and the elders say something that, you know, that, that steps into your, your kingdom? You're not, you have no business telling your neighbors how to live. I mean, you know, really, it's it's a pretty auspicious task, isn't it? Yeah. So are we living it out? Are we in the means of grace? Are we deeply in the word or are we too busy? Are we, Do we spend hours pouring over the scriptures or are we too busy? Do we believe that the blood of Christ is, is the highest connection in our world, or or are we just too busy? Are we too busy? I think we're sometimes too busy. So, and I think that's the issue. So I think we need to have our own heart check. We need to have our own conversation with the woman in the mirror. We need to be deeply in the means of grace. And that means a deep Bible reading, not just Bible listening in the car as you're heading to the gym. I mean, I mean, like sitting there, you know, here's the thing. Whatever you value in life, it will require two things of you. It will require that you spend a lot of time doing it that you could have spent doing something else, and it will tie you up. So you're not meant to make it convenient. You're meant to make it a commitment. So are you deeply in the word? If you are, the Holy Spirit will be commandeering your heart and and orchestrating your relationships with people 
and you will be a blessing to people. You know, if you aren't praying for your unbelieving neighbors, who do you think is? Yeah. There was a point in my life when Ken and Floyd Smith were the only people in my life praying for me. I'm confident of that. What if they hadn't? Yeah. You know, what if they just decided I really was just too much trouble? What oh, that's, a, that's a painful thought, actually. It really is. Who thought that? You know, too much trouble, maybe a potential infection in the church. What if oh. they had thrown me away like garbage? That is that is a powerful question, and I think it's one that we all need to take to heart. Um, I really appreciate this conversation with you. Thank you, Rosaria. I have, I have a million more thoughts and questions, but um, maybe that just means we'll have to have you back another time. I would absolutely love that. So you, you please, let's do that. Okay. One last question that I ask every guest. Is there something the Lord's been using in your life lately to encourage you in your walk with him? Um, it is. And it's, it's the Psalms. Um, the, the Psalms uh, have been, and, and it's been pretty consistent, but, but I'm in a season right now where I am reading five Psalms a day, starting with the day, you know, starting with the number of the day it is, and then adding 30 to that. That's how you end up with five. Um, and then of course, when you get to Psalm 119, you're just, you're just stuck, right? <laughs> you're, just, you're just there for the long haul. That's the only one you're reading. Right. But the, I just thank God for the Psalms. They, they are my guide to faith in life. They, they clarify for me where God is in whatever suffering I'm facing. And, um, and they're just so clear. They're just the clear, the clear meat of the scripture that I need right now. That is really encouraging. I I love hearing the different answers from different people because you really get a good picture of what God is doing in in lives. Yes, yes. Well, thank you again. The Lord bless you. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you another time. Thanks for being here today. Thank you again so much for joining us today. We're praying that this episode will encourage you to talk about and reach out to your unbelieving neighbors in love and faithfulness to the Lord. If you'd like to read more from Rosaria, you can find her at her website, rosariabutterfield.com, where you'll find links to her three books, resources, and various topics she addresses through her writing and speaking. Our new website is women-encouraged.com, where you'll find show notes, articles, and information about upcoming Women Encouraged conferences and events. Early bird tickets are on sale today for our Women Encouraged Pacific Northwest conference on February 7th and 8th. Author Glenna Marshall, writer Gretchen Ronovic, and myself will be speaking on the topic of whatever is true, looking at the gift of God's word, his presence with us, and how the truth works in us as believers in Jesus Christ. As always, we're so grateful when you leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. When you do this, listeners are able to find us and connect with gospel hope and scriptural truth. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. My friend, we cannot offer anyone love, joy, peace, hope, or acceptance apart from God but you carry in you the Holy Spirit. We offer Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen and ascended for sinners. Your unbelieving friends and family, neighbors, co-workers, whoever God brings you into contact with, they all need this kind of love. Let's offer them the good news without qualification, without fear, without watering it down. Let's give them what we've been given by God's abundant grace. <laughs>